Turn in your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 10. If you need a Bible, um, raise your hand. Uh, we've got some ushers along the side that can give you a Bible in the back right here, um, up front as well. Uh, and also at this time, our sprouts can be dismissed. Children, kindergarten and younger uh, can go with Megan. Megan, could you give you a little wave? Um, sprouts can go with Megan to our sprouts ministry, kindergarten and younger. Turn in your Bibles to the, the, the letter of Romans chapter 10. If you are new to the Bible, just simply open up to the table of contents and you'll find a page number and uh, easily find the book of Romans and then subsequently chapter 10. We're going to look at 17 verses out of this chapter this morning. So if you would, just follow along in your Bible as I read, starting with verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will ascend to the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? It says the word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing the word of Christ. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes to this text. We want to be a people of prayer. We want to be a people who have a broken heart for the lost, as is very evident that the Apostle Paul does here in this passage, and as you have communicated to us through his own praying and his heart's desire. God, grant us this morning the ability to to see your truth. Convict us of the sin and the, the, the layers of darkness that blind us and that keep us from uh, uh, from fully uh, uh, seeing it, seeing, seeing, seeing truth and understanding what it is that you have to say to us through this. And then God, speak to us through the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In, in 1844, there was a guy named George Mueller who was somewhat of a, uh, a hero to orphans, a number of orphanages. 
And uh, in 1844, George Mueller began to pray specifically for five people who were lost, who needed to hear the gospel, repent, and believe, and be saved. Uh, he, he said, I'll, I'll read it. He said, I, I prayed every day without one intermission, whether at sea, whether at home, whether sick or healthy. He said, I prayed every single day for these five individuals that God had laid on his heart. After 18 months of praying, all right, that's, a, what, a year and a half, if I did my math correct? Uh, what, the first came to know the Lord as their Savior. He continued to pray. After five years, after that, a second came to know the Lord as their Savior. He continued to pray. Six years after the second, a third came to know the Lord as their Savior. Now, from that point on, he just continued to pray and pray for the remaining two individuals that had not come to Christ. And uh, after year 36 of praying for these individuals, he wrote down simply the fact that they have not yet been converted to Christ. Shortly before he died, the fourth received Christ as their personal Savior. And then he passed away. A couple years later, the fifth, who John, uh, George Mueller had been pleading God for, saw Christ to be a glorious Savior and repented of his sins and trusted in Christ. George Mueller was somebody who would pray. He prayed for needs to be met in the orphanage, and he prayed evidently for the lost to be saved. And this morning we start a four-part series on prayer, and specifically praying in these ways. Uh, it's sort of been over the last year, two years, kind of been brought to my attention and to the attention of our elders that we as a church really don't value prayer. I don't mean, I don't mean programmatically or that we don't pray here, we don't have, pro- but just as, as, as a congregation, as members, I don't, we're not a, a praying body as we should be. Uh, God has uh, used some of you godly women to, to help us in this and, and, and have boldly approached myself and some of the elders and said, we need to be a praying church. And uh, so after months then of, our, of the elders praying and asking God for direction, uh, we uh, have decided, yes, we need to become a praying body. Uh, more so than we are. And again, we're not talking about a, a new prayer meeting per se that may happen, or we know, we're not talking about a program of prayer. We're talking about you as individuals, as members of this body in this city, falling on your knees before God and begging Him. Now, it's not that we don't pray, but I talked about a couple of weeks ago how so often we are sort of spiritual navel gazers, like we look at our own belly buttons like a little baby that just found that they have a belly button, and that's how we pray as well, all right? So we look at our belly buttons as we pray, so to speak. So we're praying for stuff that affects us, hurts, pains, issues that we're facing, doubts that we're facing. So often we do pray, but we forget this like broad uh, horizon uh, of of prayer that needs to be part of our prayer life. What we want to do is sort of, over the next four weeks, lift up our eyes from our belly buttons, if you would, and see the horizon of reality. 
the spiritual reality that we live in. So we have four parts to this. Today we're going to focus on praying that the lost would be saved. Next week we're going to focus on praying that, uh, that Christians would be built up. The third week we're going to pray uh, for the good of the city. And then the fourth week we're going to begin to pray for true revival. Now here's my personal request as we begin, is that you guys pray in these ways throughout these weeks. All right, that's what I ask of you. In your personal times, of devotional times, maybe you have a journal that you write in, uh, begin praying in these ways as we go through this. Cool? Everybody good? We, we agree to that? All right. Um, let's, let's just take a look at this chapter. Look at the first line again. Brothers, he says, my, my heart's desire and my prayer for them is that they may be saved. Now, who is the them he's referring to? If you were to just pick up the, the letter of Romans and began, begin reading through it, what you would find is in Romans 1, we uh, uh, are shown that we are all idolaters. Uh, that if given a hundred opportunities, we would always turn away from God. By the time we get to Romans chapter 3, we are convicted and it uh, clearly tells us that we are all sinners, all right? We have all fallen short of the glory of God, all right? So we are like all on an airplane heading to the ground fast, falling short of the glory of God. He goes on and he talks about the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of Christ in in chapter 6. He begins talking through what it means to be sanctified or to grow as a believer through this life. Uh, the reality that we are freed from the, from the power of sin, yet the reality that sin continues uh, in our lives and we continue to wrestle against sin. Yeah, then we get to chapter 8, all right? So if you know of anything of Romans, chapter 8 is a wonderful, wonderful chapter. My favorite chapter in the Bible, probably. Begins with this declaration, therefore, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, all right? So falling short of the glory, uh, airplane heading fast to the ground, uh, Christ enters into the picture, the glory of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel. Therefore, because of Christ, there is no condemnation for those who find themselves in Christ, all right? Romans 8 then ends by saying, and therefore, all things work together for good to them. So whatever you're going through in life, all things work together for good to them who love God. Now, Romans chapter 9 then takes somewhat of a sad, difficult turn. I, I wonder if uh, uh, Paul, as he's writing it, begins to tear up as he pens chapter 9, as he considers the reality that his brothers and sisters are still sort of on this plane heading to the ground. As he considers the reality that his own flesh and blood, and he's referring there to Israel, the family that he has come from, the covenant family. As he considers the reality that that while we're going to the Gentiles, while we're taking this good news and we're seeing Gentiles converted to the gospel, what about my brothers and sisters? The reality that it, is it possible that, that, that some of my own flesh and blood are actually outside of God's elect? They're outside of the true covenant family. Now with, with that said, we then enter into chapter 10, verse 1. Maybe as tears begin to dry on his face, it is my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, that they may be saved. 
Now, as I was studying this, the first question that popped into my mind is, why is Paul actually praying for their salvation? And the reason I ask that is, in chapter 9, he made it pretty clear, it is God who saves. God opens the heart of the blind. God rescues. And God will not fail in saving His people. His will will be done. The redemption is accomplished in Christ. And so, as Paul has made this like uber clear in Romans 9, that God is God and God's will will be done, why then does he begin chapter 10 by saying, and it's my heart's desire, or my prayer, meaning like a pleading, a petition to God that they may be saved. You see, I've been through two extremes in my own prayer life as, uh, as a believer. I used to pray believing that I could change God's mind. All right? Um, like, God, I'm failing Spanish class, and uh, I'm, I'm having trouble studying. Uh, would, you, would you help me here? As if I'm like giving God information that he didn't know, and God says, oh, I didn't know you were failing Spanish. Like, I was over here doing this thing. Thank you for calling my attention to your life so I can intervene and, and help you continue to be lazy in your studies and somehow pass Spanish class. I mean, that was sort of my, my thinking, my, my thought of God and just kind of why we pray and how, was sort of this wishy-washy God that's, he's powerful, all right? I mean, he can do things, but he's really, he doesn't really kind of know all that's going on and occasionally I need to mention some things to him because he's forgetting uh, me over here, all right? Now, then I go to Bible college, all right, and I, and I, uh, study theology, and now I'm doctrinally sound, quote-unquote, right? And I discover that God is a very, very, very big God. He's a God that is all-powerful. He's a glorious God, like beyond my comprehension. And He, he is a will that will be done. And His will is always good and always just and always right. So now that I got my theology straight, I stopped praying. All right, because God is God and you know, he's going to do what God's going to do, right? So why pray? Why put on my shoes and go out and do something, roll up my sleeves? Now, here's, here's what I'm struck with as I'm studying this passage. Paul doesn't believe that God is like this wishy-washy God, all right? He doesn't believe that we need to inform God or instruct God or alert God to some situation, Yet he also doesn't believe, uh, he doesn't believe that we should just sit back on our hands and just let God do his thing. He turns to pray, to beg God. I'm reminded here of Charles Spurgeon. He said, as he prays for the lost, he says, God, save the elect and elect some more. Meaning, like, when we are praying, when Paul is praying for his brothers and sisters, who he believes very, very, it's very possible that they might be outside of the family, as he's praying for them, uh, it's, it's a statement of Paul saying, look, I have no clue who God is calling to himself. 
I have no clue who God is working in right now and about to powerfully, miraculously raise from the dead. And it also is this recognition, this, this reality that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's that and it's even more. All throughout the Scriptures, what we see is that God actually uses the prayers of His people to bring about His ultimate purposes. We see this, I mean, all throughout the Scriptures. They're, they're praying here in a house and then a knock on the door, all right? And God was using the prayers of His saints to bring about His will. So in the same way, for instance, that God would use one of His people to hand a cup of cold water to the thirsty to quench their thirst, in the same way God has, in His sovereignty, chosen to use us as His people to invite us into the work that He is doing in this world, and through our begging God and pleading God on behalf of people, God uses our prayers to powerfully save and wake up the dead. We want to be a church that falls on our knees and begs God and pleads for the souls of the lost. However, I, I was <clears throat> this, this guy I was with yesterday, uh, Jim Stitzinger, he's a, the professor from Southern, uh, he told me yesterday, he said, evangelism is like flossing your teeth. I was like, what in the world does that mean? Here's what he meant by that was, if, if you were to, if you, let's say you went to a lecture on flossing your teeth. I know they don't exist, although they might. You went to a lecture on flossing your teeth. Every one of us would be sitting in that lecture saying, yep, I know I need to floss my teeth. and I know I'm not doing it. And I need to do a better job, and I know I'm going to fail at it, all right? When we talk about evangelism, and when we talk about praying for the lost, here's what I know that you're probably, most likely, already sensing, believing, is sort of like, yes, Joel, I already know that I should be praying for the lost, and I haven't been, and it's an ongoing struggle in my life to do so, all right? So, I'm not trying this morning to put guilt on you, to just shower you in a, in a guilt trip, because you don't pray enough, particularly for your lost friends and family members. But here's what I want to do. This is my hope. Is that we can, through looking at this chapter, somewhat paint a picture of the praying Christian. And I, want, I want to show you, uh, those of you who are artists, there are three primary colors. Is that right? And uh, you can make all colors out of those three colors. Am I right? Okay, good. Well, this works then. This, this fits my, uh, my outline. So I have three Primary colors of the praying Christian, all right? Uh, three marks of the praying Christian. Three, three truths of the, playing, the praying Christian. And so if you desire then to become a praying Christian, someone who's pleading on behalf of the lost, I urge you to listen this morning and to listen to these three marks. Examine yourself accordingly. Amen? All right. So the first one is this. We see this in verses 2 through 4. The first color is that the praying Christian has a broken heart for the lost. 
The praying Christian has a broken heart for the lost. Now, we looked at verse 1. Paul here says, My heart's desire, my prayer for them is that they may be saved. After he just finishes this sort of heart-wrenching chapter about the reality of those outside of the family. And then possibly through tears, as tears are maybe drying in verse 2, he thinks about them. And he says, I, I bear witness, like, I, 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 I resonate with them, that they have a zeal. There is a work ethic, a spiritual sort of religious work ethic that, that they have, but it's not according to knowledge, meaning it's a, it's a false zeal. And what are they ignorant of? Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, that is, they did not submit to God's righteousness for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The false belief that was pervading the view of his flesh and blood brothers and sisters was that righteousness could be attained through following the law through being obedient to God, through following His commands, that we could in some ways attain our own or make up our own righteousness. And then right there in verse 1, his heart's desire, meaning the, uh, the very core of who he is, the longing that exists, is that they might wake up to this reality. That those who have this zeal might recognize that it's a false zeal as they seek to attain their own righteousness and that they might wake up to the righteousness of God and that is what we find in Jesus Christ. What breaks Paul's heart for the lost and what ought to also break our heart for the lost is as we see the lost trying to establish their own righteousness, we see zeal, we see a work ethic, and it is all in vain. Like, a, like an individual who's sunk in the ocean. And they don't know which way the surface of the water is. And so they just simply begin swimming, hoping that they have chosen the right direction. Yet, friends, they are swimming downward toward the bottom of the sea. There is a work ethic. There is, there is a desire to some degree, but it's a false zeal. I had a, a friend who was Muslim, part of the Nation of Islam, right around the corner, who was shot in the head and killed after some back and forth uh, with violence. I went to his funeral, and there he is lying in the casket. And the funeral was being performed by the men from the nation. And it was the absolute just heaviest moment of my life. I already, I already struggle with a little bit of depression. All right, this didn't help. As I sat there and listened, this is what it looks like, they said, to get to heaven, to become a righteous person. And then from that point on, it was law, command, obedience, good works, um, as this man who was shot, by the way, through a life of violence, as he's lying there, uh, almost, I think, forgetting that, uh, the men go on, you, 
living a life of violence will not get you to heaven. You will not enter paradise through living this life. If you do, now, nothing about grace, nothing about forgiveness, nothing about real hope. It was, it was zeal. It was structure. It was law. It was commandments and obedience. But as I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm imagining to myself how far I fall from that. Like if I right now am listening to this and this is my message and this is what it means to be made right with, with God, I have fallen so far away. Because even when I try to do good, it's often with poor motivations. Even when I try to do good, it's often mixed with wickedness and evil and the desire maybe to be, to be seen by man. A, a zeal that exists. You know, false zeal. Friends, it, this, this should break our hearts. And this is, we're not just talking here, when we, when we talk about praying for the lost and be, having a broken heart for the lost, we're not just talking about those who are part of, let's say, a false or a bad religion. But we're talking about those who consider themselves Christians as well. As a pastor, one, one of my privileges is I get to meet with a lot of Christians, and when I do, I often ask them uh, what it looks like to be made right before God. Um, I frame it in various ways. And I remember one, one woman in particular, she, she said, well, I, I believe that I'm accepted by God because uh, when God looks at me, He sees my heart and He sees that I'm a good person and that I really mean well. Friends, she's been in church her entire life. I served alongside another Christian in the community. And, uh, uh, and after our day of service, this individual with a smile on her face, said, well, one more notch in my way to heaven. Maybe God will accept me now. Friends, she's been part of a church in our neighborhood, right down the street, her entire life. We're not talking just simply about those who are outside of the church and maybe trying to get them in the doors. We're not talking about those who... Uh, uh, profess only to be agnostic or atheist or Muslim or what have you. We're talking about also those who, as John MacArthur put it, are damned through the church. Believing that through their zeal, they may be saved. Through their obedience, through their good works, they may be saved. A few years ago, we, uh, as, as a church, stopped our block parties for a season. If you've been a part of the church for a while, you know that we do a lot of stuff in the community. We'll do block parties. We've painted schools, this school, etc. For a season, we stopped everything. And here's why. We began to realize that a lot of Christians were sort of coming along for the ride, feeling guilty about life, feeling guilty about their lack of love for God, lack of love for neighbor. And what we found was that through giving them an event to come to, to roll up their sleeves, do something good in the community, serve in some capacity, throw a block party, paint a school, what we found was that through uh, giving the, them 
an event, we were giving them a venue to attain their own righteousness. And friends, when we stripped that away from our people for a season, my goodness, people had to deal with guilt. It got ugly for a little while. Christians who are seeking to attain their own righteousness. So here, this is what I'm saying. When we pray for the lost, we're praying for the lost. Our heart breaks for the lost in the church and outside of the church who are seeking the righteousness of God through their own works. Now, what mostly breaks our heart about this, we see right there in verse, verse, verse uh, 3, as they are seeking their own righteousness, he says at the core of that is the fact that they are ignorant of the righteousness of God. This means that the Muslim, say, who's following the commands and, and, uh, and, uh, with, with zeal and structure is actually ignorant of God's righteousness. Or to say that the, the Christian who's, who's uh, mentoring a child and believes that through doing this, God is in some way happier, is they're, they're actually ignorant of the righteousness of God. Meaning the, the righteousness of God, huge, big, wide, beautiful holiness. And we just simply don't see that as we seek to attain our own righteousness. That we don't have the, the, uh, the prayer that we see in Daniel chapter 9, verses 7 and 8. Righteousness, it says, belongs to God. To us, open shame. Open shame, he says, belongs to us and to our kings and our princes and our fathers because we have sinned against God. If we can fathom an eternally holy and righteous God with no stain or wrinkle, unfiltered justice and peace and love, we can then begin to understand something about the righteousness and the holiness of God. Our hearts should break for the thousands and thousands of people in this city alone who are ignorant of God's righteousness and therefore are seeking to attain their own. Secondly, here's the second color, all right? The first one is that we should have a broken hearts for the lost. The second one is that the Christian, the praying Christian, believes that Jesus is our only hope. Jesus is the only hope of the lost. Look at verse 5. For Moses, he says, writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Meaning, here, here is the law, here are the commandments. If you uh, do the commandments, you obey perfectly, then you shall live. So here, what, what Paul's doing is he's beginning to compare and contrast this sort of zeal, works-based religion with true gospel-centered spirituality. And on one hand, we see those who have this zeal, this, this desire to attain their own righteousness. Then there in verse 6 and 7, he compares that. He says the, those uh, who have a righteousness based on faith says, don't, don't, don't say who will ascend to heaven and get Christ or who's going to go down into the earth and get Christ. Meaning, Jesus did two acts. He, he came down into this, uh, into this world. He descended and then he died, buried, and then the second movement, if you would, was his coming up out of the ground. And what Paul is simply saying here is, look, 
uh, we're not talking about uh, trying to find the superhero who can go to heaven and grab Christ and bring him down and do, uh, so, he can, so he can do something for us. We're not, we, we don't need to go into the ground and somehow revive his body and bring him back to life. But rather, Christ has already done the work. Christ has done everything for us on our behalf. Then in verses 8 and 9, he makes it clear. He says, but what does it say? He says, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Not that confessing with your mouth is is yet another sort of work that you you have to do it this way or a certain way in order to be saved, but rather there is just this this belief and something that happens, something that changes inside of this lost person, and it turns into a confession that Christ is my only hope. He is my only Savior. True spirituality then is when one realizes that our lives are a train wreck. And that our only hope is Jesus. If you're not a Christian, um, uh, these 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 verses are absolutely important for you to understand and hear. To know that Jesus lived the life of righteousness for you, on your behalf, that He died on the cross, and through His death, your sins were forgiven. That all who trust in Christ have the promise of forgiveness of sins, new life, and a changed heart, and then eventually the promise of freed from the very presence of sin. Christ is your only hope. Christians, do you believe that Jesus is the only hope of the lost? Do you believe that He is the only hope of the lost? Let me ask that another way. Uh, Is there someone somewhere who will die outside of ever hearing of Christ and they will find themselves saved? If you answer that in in the affirmative, if you say, yes, there is someone somewhere who will never hear of Christ and they will find themselves saved, then friend, you do not believe that Jesus is our only hope. I mean, we can, in the name of love, for uh, a perceived love for humanity, say some things that sound generous and nice, but what we're doing is we are minimizing who Christ is. We are saying Christ is not my only hope. We sing this song, all I have is Christ. Well, that would then not be true, would it? If we can in some way find a righteousness outside of the gospel. One pastor put it this way, he said, a lot of folks often ask the question, will a good person uh, who dies without ever hearing of Jesus be saved? And his answer was, well, yes. The problem is there are no good people. And this is where we begin in Romans, with Romans chapter 1. The reality is that even... uh, Uh, the individual with the most zeal has fallen very, very short of the righteousness of God. And Christ, friends, is the only hope of the lost. So as a church, we serve, we feed, we care. But if we were to abandon our only hope in Jesus Christ, then we've abandoned it all. 
Charles Spurgeon, a preacher from the 19th century who I happen to quote a lot, uh, he uh, began a pastor's college and was training up uh, pastors from poor communities who could not afford an education in the gospel to preach the gospel in poor communities. He then also, sometime later, started, started an orphanage. And uh, some years after the orphanage had began, uh, Spurgeon once lamented the fact that, uh, that at times donors, people that give money to the, mini- to the ministry, um, uh, uh, give the orphanage preference over the pastor's college. And then he, he had this interesting thought on that. He, he said, in some ways, like in my heart, like I would love to be able to do that. Like I, I love these orphans. I'm paraphrasing. I, I, I love these orphans. I, I love the work that we're doing with them. Um, in some ways, my flesh wants to lift that up. But he says, what I know to be true is that uh, uh, training up people to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest mercy ministry of all. Meaning, if we uh, abandon the preaching of the gospel or the training up or the focus on discipleship and the focus on Jesus for the sake of uh, lifting up uh, uh, meeting temporal needs, then we have essentially done everyone a disservice. Jesus is the only hope of the most destitute. Jesus is the only hope of the wealthiest. Jesus is the only hope of the, the, the individual in rags as well as the individual who is hooked up. Jesus is the only hope of the imam. Jesus is the only hope of the hipster agnostic. Jesus is the only hope of the God-hater. So the praying Christian then believes that, um, uh, that Jesus is our only hope and the only hope for the lost, and the praying Christian has a heart that is breaking for the lost. Let me just give you one last color here and we'll close. The third one is this. The praying Christian understands how the lost are saved. So again, if you're not a Christian, these next few verses are very important. Look at verse 10. He says, for with the heart, <clears throat> excuse me, one believes and is justified. For this, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry, found my place. Everyone who believes in him, uh, no, I didn't. Verse 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. So all are fallen short, have fallen short, Jew, Greek, uh, rich, poor, whatever your economic background, race, etc. There is no distinction between us as culturally different as we all are. We come together around this one fact, and that is that we are all outside of God's glory without Christ. Yet he has bestowed riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, next question, how does an individual get to the place where they call on the name of the Lord? Well, he goes on, he says, how can they call on the name of the Lord if they have not believed? And how can they not believe if they have not heard? And how can they hear if no one preaches the gospel to them. It's quite logical, isn't it? 
You see, your desire to see the lost saved is not enough. But you must preach the gospel. And preaching, we see, has feet. Blessed, it says, are the feet of them that preach the good news. A desire to share the gospel is not enough, but we put our shoes on and we walk to the corner store and we build a relationship. We have our neighbor over. We go to work and share the gospel. Now, what is our motivation to to pray in all of this? Well, here it is. Preaching, sharing the gospel verbally is not enough, but people must hear it. So there's got to be people around. And then finally, hearing is not enough, but people must believe it. And what can you do to make someone believe the gospel? Nothing. And so we fall on our knees and we pray. What was George Mueller's motivation to pray? What's Paul the Apostle's motivation to pray? Right there in verse 16. He says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. There are those brothers and sisters, friends, family, neighbors, co-workers who have not yet obeyed the gospel. What does it mean to obey the gospel? It means to obey the command to repent of your sins and trust in Christ. They have yet to do that. And so we will pray. We will pray that God will do the work in their heart that we cannot do. You might remember the story of Lazarus. He was dead. His friends, now that he's dead, could not revive him. And so they begged Christ to come. They begged Christ to help. And Christ then opened his mouth, Lazarus, come forth. And the call of Christ woke up the dead. Friends, we need God to call the dead. To wake them up. Let's beg God to do do so. Let's pray that God would do so. If the lost are saved, it happens through prayer. If there is any culture of evangelism that is built in this church, it happens through prayer. A few years ago, while we were taking a break from the block parties and all of that, one of our members uh, was was upset with me for not doing a whole lot. and I uh, was also upset about the fact that I was using so much churchy language like sin and repentance uh, and confession, discipleship. And <clears throat> so I, I began to talk to him about what I saw around, around me as I walk from here to there and as I live in the neighborhood. And I talked about the, the uh, uh, network of hustlers around uh, the neighborhood. And how I've sat back and just kind of watched it happen. You know, some, the addicts swarm like a Kmart blue light special and uh, hand off this and walk around here. And this, this amazing network um, that is ruining the lives of these addicts. Um, I talked about the uh, triple shooting that had recently happened in the community. Uh, I talked about uh, the addictions that exist, not just with drugs, but with sex. Um, Stories that I've heard that are just absolutely excruciating to hear. I talked about racism, 
that I experience and see. I talked about classism and sexism. I talked about how uh, the, the, um, the privileged uh, hate the poor and uh, uh, vice versa. Here's, here's the reality was what I was seeing all around us was, was ugly uh, effects of sin. So I said to my friend, like, what? Look, I I love this community, and frankly, uh, doing a doing an event here or there that's at the end of the day not what the community needs. What the community needs is the only unique message that we have, and that is this beautiful message of Christ crucified. And all who call upon His name will be saved. And so my friend said, so what you're talking about is being released from sort of darkness and brought into light. And I was like, yes! And look who's using churchy language now. (laughs) Friends, let's pray for the lost that they may be saved. Let's pray that God rescues souls from the kingdom of darkness and brings them into the kingdom of His glorious light. Will you pray? Will you pray that God prepares the hearts of those who you might speak to? Will you pray that people hear? And will you pray that people believe? And will you put your shoes on? And will you go and speak the good news? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this message that You have preserved to us through Your Apostle Paul and the reality that, uh, that uh, we are Uh, must be praying to You, begging You on behalf of our lost friends and family members, the world around us, the city that we live in, and be praying also for the uttermost parts of this world, as there are so many individuals, God, who are outside of You. Lord, uh, let us see fruit through our praying, and let us, uh, uh, or motivate us through our prayers to walk and to speak the gospel uh, to those that are around us. And may we, uh, may we send out missionaries to the uttermost parts of the world to speak the gospel. The lost may be saved. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together, please. Jesus at the center of it all. Jesus at the center of it all. From beginning to the end, it will always be, it's always been you, Jesus. Jesus, nothing else matters nothing in this world will do Jesus sure the center everything revolves around you Jesus you
each week we uh, come around this table to observe the Lord's Supper. Jesus sat with his disciples and he broke the bread and he passed it to them and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. He took the cup and he passed it and he said, this is my blood which has been poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. We come to the table this morning to be reminded that Jesus is the only hope of the lost and he's our only hope. And so we walk down these aisles, we come to, to say, he's all I've got. And it's a means of grace as, as God moves through uh, this, this moment and reminds us, uh, encourages us, builds us up in our faith. In 1 Corinthians, uh, it talks about uh, those who are taking communion frivolously, those who are not Christians uh, coming to the table, or those who are um, uh, professing Christians, yet they're living lives of unrepentance. If Jesus is not all to you, if, if, uh, if it is hypocritical to come down and, and to take the bread and dip it into the cup, saying that Jesus is my everything, and yet, and you're, you're hanging on to sin. You're saying, yeah, they've got these pieces over here that are also a little bit of my life. Friends, just remain where you're at and ask God to move in your heart. And if you're not a Christian, we're really glad that you're here. And as we do come to the table, I just want you to observe and, and know that, that we believe Jesus is everything. And we hope that one day you would say that with us. Let's pray and then let's come to the table. Father, we thank you for uh, the forgiveness of sins that we have through Jesus Christ. And as we come to this table, as we take this bread and dip it into the cup, we ask that you, uh, that you uh, use this as a, as a way to uh, remind us, to give us strength, um, and that we might uh, go into our Monday and into the rest of the week uh, able to say that Jesus is our only hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.